Aloha, aloha, and welcome to Global Connections. I'm your host, Carlos Juarez, and thank you for joining us today. We've got a great show. I'm uh, welcoming a friend and someone who's going to share with us some very important uh, insights and perspectives on a topic uh, very relevant. Right now, uh, we've got with us my friend Betsy Kawamura. She's founder of uh, Women for Nonviolence and uh, joins us today from New York City. Uh, we've got a topic called Women, Peace, and Security in Northeast Asia, but we'll really be touching on a range of issues. Uh, so let me first just welcome you, Betsy. Welcome to Global Connections. Great to reconnect. I know it's been some time, but I'm really delighted. And as I understand, you're joining us now from New York City, a global citizen that you are yourself, always moving around. So thank you and welcome to Global Connections. Thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate it. And it's a, it's a joy to come back to your conversation where we left off in 2013 when I was in Hawaii. So that was some time ago. Oh my gosh. And uh, you're all, you know, making it sound as if we're old, but maybe it just means we're like, you know, we're like wine. We get more seasoned and a little bit wiser, I hope. I so. uh, and, uh, and yet, uh, of course, you know, we look at a world and, and again, uh, as our show Global Connections makes clear, I mean, we've had opportunities and, and yourself, you've had connections to Hawaii over the years with family at times. Uh, but also very important, you, you're somebody who, while you know, deeply connected in Europe uh, for quite some time, based often in Oslo in Norway or times UK um, as well, uh, you know, born in the US, but you know, as you may share in a moment with us, uh, raised partly in uh, Okinawa, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yes. Um, uh, but uh, more importantly for us, I mean, uh, a topic that we want to get to after, you know, I want you to share maybe just, just some initial background about yourself with some of our viewers. Um, uh, and, you know, it, it's a topic that right now, I'm, I'm curious to see some of the challenges, some of the opportunities that you've seen as you've been working on this, these issues for many years, particularly dealing with sexual gender-based violence, a, a topic that on one hand, it's been around a long time, obviously, and, and particularly when we look at Asia, North Asia, uh, the legacy and the history uh, of World War II and the, the comfort women and the like, but of course, more contemporary issues that persist and continue. And today, a lot of your work has taken you more recently to look at North Korean refugees, right? And some of yeah. the very serious challenges there. So let me stop. I, I, I want to maybe let you get started with us, but I look forward to a, a dialogue and, and, and gaining insight so our view, viewers can well understand better these, these very vital issues. So uh, tell me, Betsy, a little bit about, again, where, where things are now, what's on your plate these days, what are you working on now? Yes, thank you, Carlos. Um, just to recap a little bit back in our um, conversation in 2013, um, I'm Betsy Kawamura, of course, and um, I'm the founder and the director of Women for Nonviolence, which is like a rather small um, NGO that I had founded in Oslo, Norway, back in around um, 2000. Oh God, um, 2000, more than more than about 10 years ago. And the, the premises of that was that I am a survivor of sexual gender-based violence um, out of Okinawa, which is a tiny island south of Japan. And as a survivor advocate, I wanted to try to empower other North Asian survivors of gender-based violence. And um, Hawaii, of course, in the, is in the Pacific Isle. And of course, Hawaii has like a lot of ties with mainland Japan as well as Okinawa. And I think there's a lot of Uchinanchu um, people in Hawaii, as I understand. So during that time, I really wanted to create awareness of the activities I was doing in, in um, Hawaii. 
but the thing is that um, you know a lot of good things have happened actually since the time that you and I have spoken. Um, you know, amazingly, the Black Lives Matter, for instance, um, yeah. Asian hate awareness, as well as the Me Too and the Times of Women have come up you know, almost simultaneous in the last two to three years. And I consider this to be a really opportune time to basically guard our attention to the topics that we're talking about: a woman, peace, and security for Northeast Asia. And I think the reason is that you know we've come to we've come you know quite far since 2013, which is about eight years ago, where social media plays an incredibly active role in, in amplifying the voices of women, um, Asian women, you know, Black women, minority women. And I think this gives us an opportunity time to discuss the situation of you know, sexual gender-based violence, but also as like empowering ourselves as to what we can do instead of saying that we are victims or even, you know, I mean, I would, I would say it's okay to be survivors, but I would refrain from using the word victims because it disempowers us. And I think, you know, what is really important is that, you know, instead of isolating ourselves as like survivors or basically those who have been marginalized, we need to basically, you know, synergize and blend ourselves with, with the community to basically create solidarity and what could be done to prevent the situation. Now, you know, what, what is still unfortunate is that, you know, I've spoken to a few Okinawan activists here in New York, you know, believe it or not, there are like group of, um, women of mainland Japan and Okinawan women here in New York City who work on empowerment issues. And I think that this is very interesting for Okinawa. And as you know, um, you know, there's there's still like a lot of um, heavily politicized discussion on Henako and the situation of the US military um, bases in the United States. Now, what, what I wanted to really relate to the general public um, through your program today is that, the more the USA seems to present North Korea and China as a potential threat or aggressor, the more pressure there is going to be on creating US military bases in Okinawa. And what a lot of people do not realize that there is a direct connection between um, amplifying the so-called threats of North Korea and China and the maximization of potential sexual gender-based violence to women of Okinawa and Japan in general. And the reason is that is that the status of force agreement, which is an agreement between the United States military and the countries around the world who are hosting the US military, have unfortunately created a situation where there are loopholes where the US military armed forces um, personnel often get away with crimes against um, the hosting country population especially in terms of Okinawa, even mainland Japan, of um, women who have been assaulted by US military members who have not been prosecuted. And my, my colleague, um, Catherine Jane Fisher in mainland Japan, she is also like a survivor of gender-based violence by the US military. Um, between herself, myself, and very others, various other scholars, you know, they have compiled a list of survivors since 1945. And the list is quite um, astounding. And the thing is that, um, you know, I find it to be quite painful that the women of Okinawa and Japan are not fluent in English as, as far as Kathy and I are concerned, you know, as fluent as us and have the international reach. Because, you know, I firmly believe that if the survivors in Okinawa and mainland Japan, as well as the activists, had access to multilingual, you know, capacities and the availability of um, resources to go to the UN in New York to visit the human rights offices in um, in Switzerland and other international NGOs, 
it would create an incredibly amplified voice to to really create like a much more urgent need to reanalyze and and uh, redevelop the status of force agreements between the United States military and countries like Japan and Okinawa. And, you know, I certainly believe that this is of major importance because the SOFA agreement covers um, basically 700 to 800 US military bases all over the world in about 74 to 75 countries all over the world. So this is not an isolated case of the SOFA agreement creating loopholes only for um, Okinawa and Japan. Um, we are moving into basically the 20th or 25th year of the UN Security Council Resolution 1325 on Women, Peace and Security. And it is pretty audacious to think that despite the fact that the United States has created the executive order for the National Action Plan for 1325 that was uh, put in action by President Obama, um, there has been no pointed um, action by the UN nor any other international agency to, 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 you know, to, I guess, catalyze the United States to rethink of their national action plan in terms of the status of voice agreements they have with countries around the world that enable sexual gender-based violence to happen without much thought of adjudication or prosecution. Um, you know, some of the larger international NGOs back in 2019, just two to three years ago, and myself thought that it'd be really nice to have like a, like a very high level uh, roundtable discussion on that to potentially include and invite the chief prosecutor of the ICC, for instance, and the former Swedish um, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, um, Margaret Wallstrom, to such a roundtable discussion to create international awareness of these issues. But unfortunately, COVID came. And as I was explaining to you a few minutes ago, um, our initial meeting, our initial ideas and um, ambitions got oh, capitulated. However, I think with social media and other film and media mediums, um, we can create some kind of virtual roundtable discussion where people at a high level can come around to discuss these issues. And you know, I appreciate the fact that you discussed North Korea issues as well, which I did bring up back in 2013, because North Korean refugee women are another um, group of women who have gone through really bad sexual gender-based violence, especially when they're trafficked from North Korea into mainland China. The reason they are trafficked from North Korea into mainland China is because they wish to escape North Korea and its extremely harsh regime. And uh, many of the women, unfortunately, go through forced marriages with Chinese farmers as like perhaps the only means of finding any kind of economic um, survival strategy when they are in China. And on top of that, many of them become um, hung into the sex industry. And I even heard of pretty sad stories about uh, North Korean refugee women who managed to finally find refugee in South Korea. They also do unfortunately find themselves in the sex traffic trade. I mean, not sex traffic, but the sex industry as well. Um, so we do have this, um, we do have a really significant um, group of women and, um, and perhaps men also who are victims or survivors of sexual gender-based violence in Northeast Asia. But as I said before, because of the lack of international awareness in general about this region, and because of the extreme hardship of the language barriers that you, know, you cannot expect these women survivors to be fluent in English as Catherine and I are, 
and you know you cannot expect them to have the the reach level abilities that that we do at the UN and with people like yourselves or the academia here that we are finding a minimization of their voices as opposed to being amplified so I wish to take this opportunity and I thank you again you know Carlos for for letting me explain the situation to you that I think it's about time to recreate like a very strong international solidarity of creating awareness of these issues so that the voices of Far East Asian women who have gone through sexual gender-based violence, whether it's through trafficking of China, you know, from North Korea to China, or whether it's through the US military um, sexual violence that does happen in Okinawa and mainland Japan that avoids prosecution. So, you know, I mean, and, and one of the stronger reasons I keep on mentioning this to you as before is that um, in my experience of being located in Norway, in Oslo, Norway, um, it's, it's a, absolutely a fabulous place in terms of training for human rights and gender-based equality issues. The Norwegian civil society is very strong on UN, UN Security Council Resolution 1325 on One Peace and Security, and they really try to catalyze other countries around the globe to really look at a national action plan. However, when it comes to looking at 1325 for Far East Asia, namely Okinawa, Japan, South Korea, North Korea, and China, I mean, there is virtual, um, incredibly minimal amount of information on this. And part of the reason is that the Norwegian National Action Plan does not really prioritize Far East Asia. And I think this is because of the unfortunate assumption that gender-based violence is not such an important field to look at in the United States nor in Far East Asia. And I think there's also like another um, realpolitik issue is that even if Norway as a country understood that the United States has its uh, you know aggressions and egregious acts of sexual gender-based violence in some of the Northeast Asian countries, there is not much political will for Norway to approach the USA on this because of their common interest in NATO, understanding that Norway has like a common border with Russia. So you see, you know, the, the concept of gender-based violence, I mean, you know, if, if, you, if you talk to the popular person on the, the street, of course, most people would say, yes, it's really important to stop violence against women. However, if you really, really take this from a politicized level, um, stopping violence against women can be a politically very sensitive subject when countries like the United States are asked to approach Japan, Okinawa, and other countries and to really reevaluate their status force agreements. And for me, for example, to ask the country of Norway, as well as other countries, to reprimand the United States on not reevaluating their status of force agreements. So what I'm trying to tell you is that, you know, like a very simple principle of trying to minimize violence against or sexual violence against women and children can have enormous political realpolitik implications that make it virtually unrealistic for a individual person like me to expect changes. But this is part of the reason I'm here in New York is that because, you know, I do hope to create more awareness of this to my UN colleagues, and I plan to go into Washington, D.C. to create more awareness of to the think tanks I do know. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, no, oh, yes, I, I, let me say that. I really appreciate what, what you've shared is, I, I think, a very good panorama of the really, um, on one hand, the, the challenges that you see from many different, you know, actors, different players, and then this big puzzle. 
but also what can seem at times of frustration because at an individual level, we want action, we want to do things and we try. And yet consistently we're up against the frustrations, whether it's our own government or whether it's organizations with the United Nations itself, which has lofty goals and ideals, but also easily criticized because that Security Council at the end of the day is all about power politics. And if it's something against the interests of the US or the challenges of it or the Russians uh, or the Chinese, uh, nothing gets done in the end. Now, that's not to say we throw our arms away and say nothing's to be done. Uh, at the end of the day, all of us do have, you know, the communities that we're connected to. And curiously, uh, you know, what I like too is, you know, you mentioned we, we, we connected to what is now eight, almost nine years ago. And, and a lot of the same issues continue there. The challenges, what, what continues to be, I think, also interesting, and you described part of it, is the role of social media on one hand, and you can see parts of it as, uh, as opportunities uh, helping. And as you were describing, for example, the difficulty of let's say language barriers for many victims uh, who simply don't have either access to the information, can't share their story, et cetera. Um, again, I'm just thinking out loud quickly, but there are you know, probably opportunities where social media could maybe help connect people who have that language proficiency to, to translate in a way that maybe in the past, it would have required them to go and, and, and to connect in person. Uh, again, just, just thinking out loud there. But let me get more to the point. What, what I think, and, and as you know, as a, as a professor myself, uh, I, I continue doing some ongoing teaching, but thinking more from the conceptual academic point of view, you yourself have been an activist very much directly involved uh, in NGO work, working within this framework of the international system, the international organizations like the UN and, and its many umbrella pieces. The many foreign governments, and, and I, I, I know that you've mentioned Norway, and, and Norway is always a very curious, uh, very important piece in this area of peace studies. It has a tremendous concentration of expertise and, 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 and institutions and capacity, and yet it has limitations too. It's a small country, and, and you described at the end of the day what, what we can only say is real politics. It's that power politics of the U.S. and Norway, which have a, a, a very important alliance that they're a part of and which the U.S. is the bigger, you know, dominant, you know, super power. Um, but I, I wonder if maybe just from the, your own perspective of many years working on these issues, do you, would you, how, how might you describe the way in which social media, because it's a topic that continues to have double-edged sword, it can help, it can, it connects us as virtual communities, it allows us today to speak from, you know, different parts of the world and to then share that but at the same time, we also see there are other darker elements, whether it's the way in which, uh, you know, more sinister interests can use social media or authoritarian leaders, you know, in so many places and deeply polarize environments. And, and then it gets harder to put something so important like this human rights, rather, rather something that requires us to know history, to know law, to know, you know, substance. And too much of the world is like driven by just those simple answers, yes and no, and emotions. And, and this gets brushed aside. But at the end of the day, we need we need to know the story. We need to know the history. We need to educate people about it. And those who are choosing not to, hopefully we can marginalize them. But today, sadly, social media is giving them a platform in some ways to, to suddenly push out. Uh, and it reminds me a little bit of the way you were describing. Sometimes you have these issues that we all agree are so important and we can all agree we need to do something about it. Why can't we? And, and there, there's no simple answer, but there are many reasons. Uh, a lot of them are the different interests that the actors have, uh, like the states, you know, whether it's the US government, Norwegian government, or the limitations of institutions uh, that you work with. 
So I wonder if you can maybe even to put it as a real quick question, it would just be, how do you see the social media either as opportunities and, 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 and ways in which maybe it has helped transform even the activism that you do? Because you know today uh, we see more of it. It was not as much 10 years ago and certainly not as much 20 or 30 years ago. Well, you know, one of the very positive things that, that happened is that since Biden um, came into the presidency um, not too long ago, you know, I'm very thrilled to hear about the new um, White House Council on Gender Policies. And I think that this is really welcoming. Um, as I understand, the former members of the Time's Up are heading the White House Council on Gender Policies, which is um, fabulous. And as I understand, I've read their social media and um, their website um, quite often and they talk they speak a lot about social responsibilities and accountability and i suppose what they mean by accountability is to bring those who are accountable for gender-based violence or you know or violations against um gender equality to to the forefront and i think that these issues are very important um they they do speak about international um policies that they're concerned with i haven't seen too many other social media that do cover international policies but certainly on on the domestic front i do see a lot of the social media coming from jennifer klein times up the, the new White House Council on Gender Policies to discuss this. You know, my plan, uh, my strategic plan is with some of my colleagues who are also survivors, I thought that it'd be really nice to approach the new White House, uh -huh. to approach um, President Biden um, and his colleagues and the office cabinets involved in the new council about a few things about, you know, as, as I spoke to you, it's about the status of force agreements that, that govern the relationship, the legal um, relationship between the United States and the military forces around the world, nearly 800. And another issue that I would like to bring into um, the light is um, the, the, apparently it's a terrible name, it's called the Recreation and Amusement Association, the RAA. You know, just very quickly, the Recreation and Amusement Association um, was created in 1945, around September. This was when Japan capitulated to the United States. Um, the United States basically came into Okinawa in Japan. And basically it was um, under President um, Eisenhower, Truman and um, General MacArthur, you know, the, the United States, the allied forces were there as a kind of way to repair and to build up the, the country of Japan. Unfortunately, the Recreation and Amusement Association, which was formed by the Japanese government with the total understanding of the US military, was to provide Japanese women as sexual slavery for the military, the US military. And I heard some gruesome accounts of some of the women having to have about 45 clients and they were paid $2 a day. Um, who wants to have 45 clients and be paid $2 a day? And uh, many of the women of Japan, um, they were kind of clandestinely recruited into this um, program to sexually serve the US military as a way to kind of serve their country. And I find this to be extremely disappointing and um, talk about um, you know, erasing any trace of dignity for women. And what I find equally heinous is that you know, despite the USA being proud enough to present themselves as the, the freedom givers, 
to, you know, in, in World War II in terms of the Nazis, I mean, why would they in Japan basically say yes to being sexually served by a group of extremely impoverished and desperate women who have got have nothing and they had were capitulated, you know, for the US government. I mean, this RAA lasted for at least six months. The only reason that the US government decided to shut it down is because of rampant spread of um, sexual transmitted diseases. But even after officially the RAA was shut down, um, there was the phenomenon of the so-called pompon women, um, Japanese women who were so-called civilian um, freelance prostitutes who basically sexually served the US military who continued to because it was lucrative. There was there was extremely other mean other any other means of financially surviving during that time, and it was a very sad situation where many other women apparently they were looking upon the pompon women with some form of jealousy because these women were able to afford Western clothes were av available you know were able to afford um, purses handbags modern clothing nice hairstyles and chocolate and food. And this shows you the desperate situation. And I basically find it unconscionable to think that a US military service person would stoop that low to, to say yes to the, the sexual slavery of these women. And unfortunately, many of these women um, are dying out. They're in their 80s and 90s. And my original plan was to go into Japan to, to trace them down with the help of some academia, but obviously COVID has completely nullified that effort. So I'm also reaching out to academics um, in mainland USA, several of whom I know, as well as some in Europe I'm hoping to identify and in Japan and Okinawa to basically um, amplify or preserve the stories of these women, original women who served the US military under the RAA. No, I, I just wanted to note the huge difference, the huge difference between the comfort women of Southern Korea and these RAA is that um, the South Korean comfort women have received enormous support from the South Korean government and the American government. But the women of the RAA, I really doubt that they're going to have any kind of support from Japan or the USA. So it's up to survivor activists like myself, especially of Japanese or Asian background, to amplify their voices or preserve their stories while you know we still can. So I just wanted to mention that to me also. No, well, that's a very commendable point, and, and it's so important, particularly what you're speaking of is the need for an oral history that, that can capture the stories before these now, you know, aging and, and you know, soon to be all gone. Uh, it's a serious challenge. And then the disparities that you describe, you know, the legacy for the South Koreans and what role their government and, and society chose in terms of perhaps dealing with it, um, it underscores how, gosh, a lot of times we need to understand different cultures. And, you know, again, I'm, I'm just speaking here because especially with Japan, I'm certainly not the expert on it, but I know it is so important to look at a, you know, different aspects of the culture, perhaps more pronounced, more prominent than in other societies in a way. And whether it has to do with, you know, keeping silent about this, not wanting to show face, you know, lose face and so on. This, uh, you know, this relative, uh, you know, uh, you could say almost like a stain on the image where, um, I don't know, uh, I'm just speaking out loud, but as an educator myself, I can imagine that the history in Japan that is taught is not including a lot of information about the comfort women or what the governments did. I mean, just as you could see so many examples uh, in, in the U.S. history, doesn't say a whole lot about, you know, uh, you know the marginalized communities or the plight of, of you know, endless, uh, you know, uh, 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 different minority interests. 
Well, Betsy, we've come to the end of our conversation here, but I really, I want to thank you for, for sharing this and really it underscores again, uh, there's a role for all of us and you as an individual yourself, a survivor of, 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 of gender-based violence have, have been able to harness that in ways that you connect with the other players, the institutions, the experts, uh, whether, you know, through your base in Oslo or connections in New York and Washington DC now to further, you know, I guess, give a voice to this. And, uh, and, and I think uh, I, I'm, I'm grateful for this opportunity as well. Um, I you know, share this uh, with, with an audience that brings connections with young leaders from all over the world, particularly Asia, but otherwise, you know, students who are learning about it. Uh, this is one of those things that we can't, you know, let just be kind of swept under the rug. It has to be brought out and discussed as, as difficult and uncomfortable. Uh, but I'll have to close it on that. I, I, I really do appreciate this opportunity to hear your, you share these insights and uh, we'll continue the conversation, perhaps another chance when we can. Uh, thank you for joining me here on Global Connections, part of our Think Tech Hawaii series. Uh, and uh, Betsy, uh, we're grateful to reconnect and uh, maybe next chance I can get to Europe, I'll find a way to connect with you there, okay? Oh yes, thank you. Excellent, take care, aloha. Bye-bye.